You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. Hi. So you may have noticed I am not Pastor Dwayne. Not Pastor Dwayne. I do not come from Canada. I come from uh, the Bay Area of California. Go 49ers. Oh, come on. Come on. (laughs) No, I'm actually really excited to be up here today uh, to get an opportunity to share God's word with you. And I just want to echo again uh, my appreciation for these students that were up here leading worship with us this morning. Six months we've been practicing, not just for today, but uh, for Wednesday nights that we get together and uh, worship God just like we did on the stage this morning. These students have put in hard work, and it's not just them. There's some others that are part of our team as well. And what's even better is that these students aren't just up here uh, playing instruments like they're in a rock band. These are some incredible students that we have here at uh, SCC. Uh, The ones that are part of the band, the ones that are part of our Every Week group. Incredible, incredible students. So parents, grandparents, it might not always feel like it, but you're doing something right, because we've got some great, great students here uh, at SCC. Today we're going to continue on in our uh, summer series, Summer Letters, in the book of 1 John, and today we'll be in chapter 5. So I get to break into the the final chapter of the book. Are you ready? (laughs) So you can go ahead and turn there with us this morning. As we start off at the very beginning, in verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and if we obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, my words are nothing but noise without you. I pray this morning that as we reflect on your word, as we reflect on the truth of the Bible, that, Lord, you would speak through me, but, Lord, that you would also open eyes, open hearts, Open ears and minds today, Father God, to receive the word that you would have for each and every one of us individually. Lord, we know that you're a good father and that you enjoy speaking to us, your children. So Lord, today we pray that you would illuminate this word in our lives. Lord, let us leave this place different than when we came in. Whether that's a subtle change or whether that's a a life transformation, a, a complete 180, Lord, let us grow in you today. We thank you for the love of your son Jesus on the cross for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, when Pastor Dwayne came to me uh, a, a few months ago and asked if I'd be interested in, in speaking with you all this morning, I was pretty excited. Uh, I got to admit, it was pretty exciting. It's been a while since I've gotten a, a chance to stand before a group of people that keep their chairs in straight rows, uh, that don't have to raise their hands to ask permission to use the restroom, and... Uh, that don't wear headphones while I'm trying to speak. You, you know who you are. You know who you are. I'm not going to point, point anybody out, but uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm really, uh, really glad I get to get the opportunity to be up here today. Uh, on the flip side of my excitement is kind of this, uh, this irony, because 
the passage that I'm sharing with you today in John, or 1 John chapter 5 uh, speaks of obedience and keeping God's commandments. Uh, now, the irony in it is that I work with the, the age group of people that is typically considered the least likely to be obedient. So here we go. We'll, we'll see how this goes today. And I feel like that statement uh, has been true since the beginning of time, that, that there's just something about the teenage years that brings about this sense of, of, of self-confidence and rebellion, this idea that they've got the world all figured out, and that us old people, they refer to me as old now, uh, have no idea what we're talking about. And of course, none of you were ever that way. Uh, I was never that way, right? We were all perfect angels. You know, my mom might, might say I was, but I was not a perfect angel at all, and uh, and, and uh, I think that the most accurate way to describe myself uh, would be Dennis the Menace. Um, now, if you've ever seen this movie, Dennis the Menace is not a bad kid. Really, he's not. He's just very mischievous, he's very curious, and he's very oblivious to what's going on around him. <laughs> Mr. Wilson, what a, what a sweet guy. So if that picture doesn't, uh, doesn't convince you, how about this one? Me as a very young Dennis the Menace, uh, here I was caught uh, in the act of getting into a bag on the table. Uh, it was a grocery bag, probably with cookies or ice cream or something. Uh, I, I want to note also how, how defined my arms were. I mean, just, man. <laughs> and that tan. <laughs> I remember a time as, as, as a young kid, I was in kindergarten, uh, that my mom was getting my brother and I ready for school, and it was a pretty cold morning. She had gone out in advance to get the car ready. She turned it on, got it warmed up, turned on the heater in our station wagon, and uh, she sent my brother and I out uh, as the car was warming up to, to get buckled in and, uh, and to get ready because she was running a little bit late as well. Some important things to know about me is that my rebellion did not start in my teenage years. It started a little bit before that. And uh, even into my 20s, while I was in Bible college, I took a personality test, and this test came back with the results saying, uh, be very specific about your instructions and rules when addressing Sean. Because if you don't, he will find a loophole. Uh, my mom was, was really not clear with her instruction. Her instruction was, get in the car, put on your seatbelt. Well, I figured the driver's seat was as good a place as any other to put on my seatbelt. Uh, I am the oldest child in my family, and as such, I have a little bit of power over my little brother. And so he got down and worked the pedals. Well, I had one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on the shifter knob, and uh, I'd seen my mom do it hundreds of, hundreds of times. So I thought, well, if I put it in reverse, I can swing the front of the car around, get it facing the right direction, and we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Um, it's all my brother's fault, of course, <laughs> because unlike my mom, he was unfamiliar with the, uh, the brake pedal. And so as I got the car brought around, he continued to hit the gas. And we kept going, we kept accelerating uh, in reverse, and so we got to the end of the parking line and hit my neighbor's car. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was a fun morning. Now, actually at that point, at that point, I was fine. It's like, oh, I hit a car, big deal. Like, you'll just get another one, right, Mom? Yeah. Uh, the worst part of the whole experience, honestly, was when I finally got to kindergarten and my teacher made me paint uh, a picture of what had happened that morning. And I don't know what happened, but as soon as I started painting that, it all hit me. 
and I might as well have been wetting the paint palette with my tears. It was just devastating. I, I, it, was, it was awful. So, uh, yeah, and every time I, I wreck a car since then, I cry. I don't know what it is. But I try not to do that anymore. But that wasn't the last time, unfortunately. Many of you this morning probably have stories similar to that that you could share about a time when you were younger, maybe the age of the students that, that I get to spend a lot of my time with. Uh, and those stories would, would, would show that we're really not all that different, that there might be a, a, a generational difference, there might be a, a difference in the world that we grew up in, uh, but really, us at their age, we weren't, we weren't all that different, Right? For all our similarities throughout the generations, though, there are some distinct differences in this generation. They're called Generation Z. And these differences make them unlike any generation that's ever come before them. You guys are different. But you know that, right? You guys are awesome. And I know that. We'll come back to the passage in, in John, 1 John uh, in just a moment, but before we do, I want to set the stage a little bit and explain why the Word of God and, and this passage that we're studying today is so important, not just to uh, us that have been around for a little bit, but it's so important to this generation that is coming up through children's ministry and through youth ministry, through your homes, through the schools, uh, why the Word of God is so important uh, to this incredible group of young people. Consider for a moment the world that they've grown up in. This is pretty crazy. Most of them have never licked a postage stamp. You're welcome. I had nothing to do with that technology that allowed us to just stick them on, but you're welcome. Wireless internet or Wi-Fi has always been around, and having access to it is not a privilege, but an entitlement. Social media has, for the most part, always been around, Cell phones have become so ubiquitous, big words, ubiquitous in classrooms, I'm still saying it wrong, that teachers don't know which students are using them to take notes and which ones are just planning a Friday night party. And 9-11 isn't isn't a memory of something that's happened in their lifetime, but something that's been learned from a textbook. Now, I know for some of you guys, there are, there are events that have happened throughout history that, that you have memories of that I've learned from only a textbook. But this is one example of something that's happened in our recent history as a nation that, that, that is uh, only learned through, through textbook. Part, possibly the largest and most impacting difference in the world around them, though, is the rise of something called, or, or, or is a, a cultural shift called the rise of the nuns. Now, the rise of the nuns is kind of a funny name, uh, it is not the name of a new horror movie about little sweet Catholic nuns running around terrorizing cities. Although I went to a movie the other day, and I think I saw a preview about something like that. It was kind of crazy. It's scary. I'm not going to watch that one. Um, this is nuns spelled N-O-N-E-S. And when asked on various surveys and polls, this group does not select Baptist. They do not select Catholic. They simply select none. No religious affilia- affiliation. To show you how old I am, in 1987, the year that I was born, the percentage of the U.S. population that would identify as none was, a, was roughly 8%. Now, in 
Now, if you go back to 1940, you can see that there's been a 3% growth in almost 50 years. Pretty, pretty slow. I graduated high school in 2005, and by then, that number had grown to 14% of the U.S. population identifying with no religious affiliation at all. Another nine years later, it's jumped to 23%. And that, that number next to it, the 36, represents the number of people under the age of 30 as of 2014 that identified as none. Percentage of people, 36% of those under the age of 30. Now, that was the last study that I could find. But if we, if we follow that projection, we follow that trend, we'll see in 2018, the year that we currently live in, those numbers might look a little bit more like 30% of the U.S. population identifying with no defined religion, and nearly half of all people under the age of 30 saying that they have no religious affiliation. Now, those are pretty startling numbers. The growth curve that we're on is pretty incredible right now. From the outside, it would be easy to assume that we're witnessing the demise of the church. I think it would be pretty safe to assume that if we look at the numbers. But let me encourage you that there's more to the story and that the church is still much stronger than these numbers would insinuate. I would love to share more about what's going on behind the scenes with you, but for time's sake, I'm going to move on and I'm going to let you take me to coffee if you'd like to hear some more. I'll... I will sacrifice my time for some, some coffee, and I will share more with you what's going on behind the scenes. The bottom line behind all of this is that Generation Z is the first generation in U.S. history to be raised in what's called a post-Christian society. And, a, and in, in a post-Christian society, the biblical story that once shaped culture is now no longer the narrative that gives meaning to life. So without the biblical narrative providing life's meaning, we search for meaning in other places. Meaning is sought in places like drugs, alcohol, relationships, pornography, money, success, even things like pioneering social justice issues, which sounds like a great idea, and it is. Jesus was about social justice. But if we put social justice bef before Jesus, we're missing something. Our meaning is not to be found in those things, but to be found in Christ. And all of those things fall short of the fulfillment that we can find in Christ. In the 1950s, there was a social anthropologist named Margaret Mead. Now, how she, how she predicted this, I have no idea. She was much smarter than me, apparently. But she had this to say about what, the future, what she felt the future might hold. And she said, throughout history, most cultures have been disfigurative, where parents and grandparents help their young to understand the future. A few times it becomes co-figurative, where change happens so fast that society depends on the young to help understand the future. However, I anticipate that a time is coming in history where technology changes so fast that culture for the very first time in human history will be prefigured, where children will have to figure out for themselves what their values will be. We're now living in that future. That future is now. We live in a world that's not just searching for meaning, but that's searching for identity. 
And this passage that, we're, that we read through at the beginning here today in 1 John chapter 5 starts with a crucial proclamation. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. That first sentence in this chapter starts with a proclamation of our identity. We are children of God adopted into his family through belief in Jesus. In the English language, the word believe implies a deep abiding trust. That's fitting. But the Greek word that we translate as believe has, has even more meaning. And that word is pistuo, which means to be persuaded. Now there's two parts of this persuasion that this word talks about. The first part is persuading oneself through study and understanding. It's a human believing. It's what 2 Timothy talks about when it says to study to show yourself approved. It's the study of our minds. It's the study of, of trying to understand everything about Jesus, about God, about our faith that we possibly can understand. It goes beyond burying our heads in the sand and just hoping that everything will be okay, but, but honestly pursuing deeper knowledge and understanding of, of Jesus. The second part of it is allowing oneself to be persuaded by God. It's a faith understanding. It's what Hebrews 11 talks about when it says, it is impossible to please God without faith. I think we've seen throughout history times where, where we've tried to approach God with, with, with a knowledge, with an understanding, and left faith out of the equation. And it's not enough. I think we've all encountered people in our lives that, that have this, this faith, but no understanding, no knowledge, and, and that's, that's not enough either. This belief in Jesus that, that we're called to is both. Our belief makes us his children. He is our, our father, and we are his sons and our daughters. How cool is that? But being his child is more than just a relational status. It defines who we are, children of God. See, from the very beginning of humanity, our identity has been much more about whose we are than who we are. Our identity is about who we belong to. Let me tell you this morning that I am so grateful that my identity doesn't have to be defined by the things that I've done. I am so glad that my identity does not have to be defined by the things that people have said about me. And I'm so glad that my identity doesn't have to be defined by the things that I sometimes say about myself or think about myself. But that my identity is so much greater than that. My identity, your identity, all of our identities are found in Christ. Genesis 1 starts with God creating the heavens and the earth. And before we even flip the first page, God creates man and woman in his image. This identity starts from the very beginning. He is the all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God of the universe. And we're his children. 
Psalm 139 says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Ephesians 2 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Jesus Christ so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And Ephesians 1 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He knit us together. He calls us his masterpiece. And it gives him great pleasure to call us his children. Let me tell you, in a world that wants to tell you all the things that you're not, in a world that wants to tell you what your identity is and that is found in all these other things we talked about a minute ago, these are important truths for us to realize, important truths for us to remember in our lives. He knit us together. He calls us his masterpiece. And he takes great pleasure in adopting us and calling us his children. The passage goes on to talk about loving God and loving his children. And this echoes what Pastor Dwayne spoke about last week. It's the agape love. It's the love that, that persists through all obstacles. It's unconditional. It's a love that requires action. Which is why John, in this chapter, goes on to say, And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and if we obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, we sing songs about God being a good father, and it's absolutely true. One part of being a good father is that he has expectations for us. There's things that he calls us to. There's a standard that he expects us to live, live by. Part of that, that expectation is that he calls us to love and he calls us to obedience. As we've seen over and over in the book of 1 John, we can't honestly claim to love God if we don't love his children. Now, we just got done defining a moment ago in the first part of verse 1. We got done defining God's children as those who believe in Jesus. But let me tell you that this, this passage here, this expectation to love his children, goes beyond just those who believe in him, and it goes to all humanity. We are called to love everyone. Because all of human, human creation are God's children, regardless of their faith backgrounds, their beliefs, or their lack of beliefs. I'm going to share with you one of my favorite movies in all, in all the world in just, just a moment. And that movie is, is Elf. Elf. Now, if Riley was here today, he'd probably agree with me. If you've been around for a little while, you've probably seen Riley, Pastor Dwayne and Stephanie's son, in an elf costume. It's awesome. It's awesome. But in this movie, Elf, there's a guy named Buddy. He's the main character in the movie. And what is Buddy? He's a human. Okay? A Buddy is a human. What does Buddy believe that he is at the beginning of the movie? Buddy thinks he's an elf, okay? There's a funny image in the movie that shows Papa Elf sitting in a chair and big old Buddy, bigger than I am, sitting on his lap. <laughs> Pretty apparent Buddy is not an elf, but he thinks he is. Buddy has to go on a journey to find out, to, he had to go on a journey to find out who he was. 
But Buddy's belief that he was one of Santa's elves did not change the truth that Buddy was not an elf at all, that Buddy was a human. He was the son of Walter Hobbs. See, I haven't met anyone recently that believes that they're an elf. I have met people in the past, but not recently, that believe that they're elves. But the truth is that we live in a world that is confused. That we live in a world of people who don't know their identity. But because of what we know their identity to be, children of God, we're called to love them. And my question is, how could that approach, loving people not because of what they believe that their identity might be, loving people not because of what we see on the outside, but loving people because we know them to be children of God, how could that affect those difficult relationships in your life? Those difficult people that you encounter. Those people you see on the E-line going downtown Seattle. How could you love those people if you saw them through God's eyes as his children? That kind of love is one example of the obedience that God calls us to. It's not always easy, but one thing's for sure. It requires action. It requires us to get up and do something. It reminds me of the parable found in Matthew chapter 21, in which a father has two sons. He goes to his older son and says, Son, get out. Go, go outside and, and mow the, the lawn. Work in the vineyard. And the son says, Okay, yeah, I'll do it, Dad. And then goes back to playing Fortnite. The father then goes to the younger son and says, hey, get up. Go work the vineyard. And the son's like, no, I'm not interested. But puts Snapchat down and gets up and goes outside and works, right? And so he asks the question, who is the obedient one? Well, the obedient one is the one who got up and did it. The one who took action. See, agreeing with the truths and principles found in God's word is not enough. Just agreeing with them is not enough. We should be spurred into obedient action. Think about this with me for a moment, that if we truly believed the promises of God's word, if we truly believed with all of our hearts that God is a good father, that he has only good things for us, that our plans can never match up to his perfect plan, obedience wouldn't be an issue. Our disobedience wouldn't be a problem. We would be obedient. The thing is that although God's plans are perfect, we're not. We're far from it. I'm far from it. Again, going back to the book of Genesis, even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden fell victim to doubting God's goodness. We see their active obedience as they, they take the forbidden fruit, the, the fruit from the tr forbidden tree, and eat it. But that wasn't where their disobedience started. The original sin was not eating the forbidden fruit. It was believing the lie that God was trying to withhold something good from his children. Their act of disobedience was a byproduct of their belief. And in our lives, our disobedience toward God's commands is also a byproduct of a lie that we believe. We might, not, we might not know in that instant that we're thinking, oh, well, that's a lie that God's not good. We, we're probably saying to ourselves, God is good. We believe this. 
but somewhere deep within, we think that we can do it better than him. For many people, this talk of, diso- or this talk of obedience to God brings a feeling of weight and burden. But for those who have experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus, we know that his commands are not a weight placed upon us, but that there's an inexplicable freedom in obedience. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 say, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, I am not a country boy, didn't grow up on a farm, a ranch. I grew up in a small town, city atmosphere. So I think I'm right on this. But if you know more than me, feel free to take me to coffee and tell me. <laughs> but the yoke was, was, was used to pair two animals together for the purpose of accomplishing a task, such as tilling up a field to prepare it for planting a seed. While yoked together, both animals would, would move in unison. They would work in unison together toward their goal. If one of them would become tired or weak, the other could take the burden upon itself, could take the extra weight upon itself to give the weak, tired one a little bit of a break. In Matthew chapter 11, we're invited to be yoked with Jesus. It's a decision we have to make, but let me tell you, He always carries more of the burden. Always. He says it in Matthew chapter 11. We're all yoked to something. We have an invitation to be yoked with Jesus. It's a choice we have to make. We, especially, I think, in in United States of America, love our individuality. But the truth is that we're all yoked to something. We're all yoked to something, whether it's Jesus, whether it is a, an addiction, whether it's a relationship, whether it's something good or bad. We're all yoked to something. Being yoked to sin may feel like relief for a while, but the pain is only temporarily numbed. And eventually as the pain wears off and that that pain comes flooding in, we realize that we're yoked to the wrong thing. Being yoked to God may feel like pain as we're being refined and as we learn to submit to him. The yoke can be painful as if we fight against it. And so as we learn to submit to God and, and to his guidance, sometimes it feels like pain, but, but soon we realize that our burdens lightened. And we find relief in knowing that we are no longer carrying it alone. See, even in the midst of being yoked with God, our souls are constantly being bombarded with the lies that he doesn't have what's best for us. We're in a battle, a never-ending battle 
for our souls. Ephesians chapter 6 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. John acknowledges the struggles that we all face when he wrote verses 4 and 5 of this chapter today. He says, For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The unfortunate outcome of not achieving victory over the world is that the world is achieving victory over you. There's no passive bystanders. There's no cheerleaders rah-rahing on the sidelines. We're all active in this battle. And if we're not achieving victory over the world, the world's achieving victory over us. There's victory in two planes that we're fighting for, our, our, own, our own souls, our own relationship with our Heavenly Father, and for those that, that we interact with in the world around us. Are you overcoming or are you being overcome? Look around you at your neighbors. I hear stories of of things that happen in schools. Watch the news. Read what's happening on social media. In many areas of our lives, the world is winning. One large-scale example of that is in the nation of Japan. Now, this isn't something you would have seen on the news. Probably something most of you haven't heard before unless you read the book that I read it in. But there's a startling statistic that's come out of the nation of Japan. That in the last 10 years, they've seen the average attendance of teenage students, like these sitting over here today, drop from 30 to 0.7 in their churches. Now that's not 30 to 7, that's 30 to less than 1, 0.7 in 10 years' time. a heartbreaking statistic. One I hope never rings true for us. But if I'm being honest with you, that's the direction we're heading. Not necessarily as SCC, but as a church in America. And again, if we're to be honest with ourselves as individuals, as a global, worldwide church, we are at least partially to blame for the post-Christian world that our students are growing up in. We haven't always done a great job of showing the love of Jesus. We haven't always done a great job of showing what it means to be children of God. This isn't a finger-pointing because I'm, in there, I'm right in there with you. The truth is that many times our battle plan is wrong. We might have every intention of overcoming the world, achieving victory against the world, but we're, coming to, we're going about it all wrong. Victory over the world is not brought about by force. 
It's not brought about by politics, by winning religious arguments. Those might sound like some of the disciples that Jesus spent the most time with, that believed that he came to to release them from their oppressors by force, by politics, by anything pretty much other than what he really came for. Victory over the world is not brought about by heaping shame and guilt on others for the sinful mistakes that they've made. That's not it. I'm going to invite the band to, to come back up here and get ready. And I'd like to close with this, this passage from Ephesians chapter 4 that I believe to be a better way for us to achieve victory over the world. And it says, Therefore I, this is Paul speaking, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's no greater calling in life than the one given to us by our Father, by our Creator, by the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, the one who calls us his masterpiece. A masterpiece doesn't get to decide its own value. Its value comes from the one that created it. We are called to overcome this world, but we're called to do so with humbleness with gentleness, with patience, with peace, and with the love of Jesus. All of which are fruits of a life lived in obedience to him. We as Christians are known so much for what we stand against. If you walk out on the streets and and ask someone, what does it mean to be a Christian? They'll list off a whole array of different things that we're against. But I think it's time that we begin to be known what we're for. What we're for. Love. Gentleness. Peace. Patience. Kindness. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the Shoreline Arts Festival across the street. And... Uh, one person who came and and helped do some caricature drawings and things like that that said, this is great. I've never seen a church interact with this community like this before, and that is great. And we're not the only ones. There are churches doing great things. But how sad is it that they've never seen that before? Love, acceptance, forgiveness, belonging. Words that, that we talk about here on a constant basis. Laugh by. They're great words. But how are we living them out on a daily basis? How are they impacting our lives and the lives of the people that we encounter? The world needs the truth of the word of God 
But this truth is not a sword to be carelessly wielded. Our job is not to go around beating people over the head with the Bible. Okay? The world needs grace, the grace of God. But we need to be careful that we don't use grace as an excuse to overlook sin. As we reflect upon the life of Jesus, we can see that grace and truth work best in harmony with each other. As children of God adopted through belief in Jesus, let's display our love for our Father through obedience to him and by our love-filled grace and truth towards his children. In just a moment, we're going to invite you to sing another song with us. Over the last six months or so, it's been one of my, my favorite songs to sing. And this song might be new for some of you, which is okay. I think God cares a lot more about the heart with which we worship him than our ability to close our eyes in a chorus that we're well acquainted with. And the bridge of this song says, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. And I think as we wrestle with what to do with God's command for us to love people, as we wrestle with how to overcome the world with the love of Jesus, I think these words are, are fitting for us today. At the bottom of your listening guide and, and up here on the screen as well are a few questions that will help us to evaluate where we stand and to help us to grow. There's no test on these questions. Nobody's going to ask you as you leave today, hey, what was your, question, your answer to question four? These are personal. These are for you. So please be honest with yourself as we, as we read through them. How do you feel about being declared a child of God? Have your earthly relationships affected your perception of a, a father-child relationship? Generation Z is also sometimes called the fatherless generation. Where dads are either completely absent from their lives or they're still in the home, but relationally, they're not there. And guess what? That relationship affects how they perceive a father-son relationship or a father-daughter relationship with Jesus. What areas of your life are you lacking obedience in? And what are some ways that you can become obedient to God in those areas? Obedience does not come by accident. You don't accidentally become obedient. <laughs> it takes effort. It takes action. It takes intentionality. And for us to grow, we've got to acknowledge that we've got areas that we're lacking. And we've got to make a plan to become obedient in those areas. How are you showing your love for God in the way that you interact with others? Man, that one's difficult. Don't ask my wife about driving down the road because sometimes I'm not reflecting the love of God. As I'm driving up I-5, I'm like, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. Why are there so many people out? 
And is the world overcoming you? Or are you overcoming the world? How can you see more victory in your own life and in the world around you? As, as we reflect upon those questions, let me encourage you to respond to God. Again, acknowledgement to, with his truths, agreement with his truths isn't enough. We need to take action. We need to respond. We have some incredible prayer teams that are going to get set up on the sides here and up in the balcony, and they're just great people that love you, that want to pray with you. So maybe you will respond with, with one of those teams today. Up at the front here and again in the balcony, we have communion tables set up. An awesome opportunity to remind ourselves of Jesus' love for us. We love him because he first loved us by sending his son to die for us on the cross. The body broken for us. The blood spilled for us. A reminder of his love for us. Or maybe you just need to stay right where you're at and worship with us today. Reflect upon the words of the song and worship today. Whatever the case may be, I encourage you to respond. Let me pray. Lord, we're thankful that you are a good father. That you have good plans for our lives. That you call us your children. That you adopt us in to your family. Lord, we, we realize that as your children, you've got some expectations for us. And Lord, we submit ourselves to those things today. We, we leave this place here today committing to a better level, a higher level of obedience to you and your word. And Lord, we ask for your help as we attempt to overcome the world that's in us and the world that we're in. Lord, we just love you so much. And we pray today, Father God, that you would pour your love into us. Let us know today, Father, how much we're loved by you.